it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by... Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 126. Tonight, we're going to have some fun. We are going to interview an author, a gentleman named Scott Chapman. He wrote this amazing, fantastic book called Empower Your Investing. And we're going to chat about this tonight. So without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Scott. Scott, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, thanks, Dave um, and Andrew. It's a pleasure to join you uh, tonight. A little bit of background about myself. I um, I'm a professional portfolio manager. I founded my own firm about six years ago uh, called Chapman Investment Management. And this this book that you mentioned, Empower Your Investing, uh, the subtitle is actually Adopting Best Practices from Peter Lynch, John Templeton, and Warren Buffett. Um, This whole project started about 25 years ago. And I had gone through and gotten my MBA in finance and had uh, gone through the CFA or Chartered Financial Analyst Program, which is a three-year program uh, with a, at, at that time at one test given each year. You have to pass those three successive tests. Um, and the pass rate was somewhere around the 30 or 40% range. Um, three years later, I had that certification. And in 1993, I was named uh, por- the portfolio manager for a large cap growth fund which had a one-star rating by Morningstar, which was the lowest star rating they gave. It was a poor-performing bottom-of-the-barrel fund. And I was challenged to come up with a strategy that made sense that could resurrect the, the mutual fund. And unfortunately, despite having an MBA in finance and having the CFA under my belt and actually having taught a review program in the evening for CFA candidates for the, on behalf of the Security Analyst Society of San Francisco, I felt, frankly, naked that I wasn't prepared to manage a mutual fund. And the reason was, through all the material and thousands of pages of assigned readings for all those programs, all of that was, uh, all of the readings were academically oriented, written by professors who never actually managed money. There were no material devoted to the study of successful money managers. And unlike Virtually every other profession, or even um, kids these days nowadays, who wear their heroes' uniforms on their back um, and try to model their play after their 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 sports heroes, um, what comes naturally to them and what comes naturally to many other professions, whether it be cooking or plumbing or carpentry, virtually every other profession, there's an opportunity to study or mentor or apprentice under someone who's good at what they're doing, who has seasoned experience and success. And unfortunately, in the investment world, uh, that generally does not happen. Not only are the readings um, very academic and theoretical and not based on practical real-world success knowledge, best practices, but um, in the investment world, a lot of the successful money managers prefer to keep their cards close to their vest. And when they hire a young enterprising analyst, um, they generally uh, allow them to sink or swim on their own, and very little guidance is given. And, uh, and 
maybe some of the reason for that is that the investor partners um, have a reluctance to uh, share their total philosophy for fear that that new hire will eventually uh, leave the firm and take their methods and clients with them. And so I embarked on a self-study and chose these three iconic legendary investors as models of excellence. And I basically wanted to learn all I could about them. So I read what was there at the time, which uh, frankly wasn't a whole lot. And so instead what I did is I supplemented that with research at a university library at night. And after work, I would go there and, um, and download through Microfiche. This was before Google, uh, old, old articles that dealt with the news environment that existed at the time those three investors were making their successful stock picks. So for example, when Warren Buffett invested in American Express in 1962 and devoted the bulk of his net worth in that one company. I wanted to understand what was happening back then. And then years later, those three investors would give, give interviews that provide some rationale as to why they bought those companies. And so what I did is I combined the news context plus the interviews and formed case studies. And then those case studies uh, formed a pattern where there are some common threads that ran between them that formed the investment process that I used and four years later, that one-star bottom-ranked mutual fund became a five-star fund. Um, and so I decided that it made sense to offer a seminar to the CFA candidates in San Francisco to supplement their theoretical knowledge with some practical real-world knowledge that I was able to um, to find. And that I did that for two years. And one of the students said, you know, you should write a book on this because – uh, no one has ever integrated best practices from investors before, and we're really starving for uh, tech, you know, their technique and their philosophy, what drove them to become who they are. And um, you know, that would be a great book to offer to supplement um, the material that's out there. So uh, it will also streamline the process for beginning investors as well as professional investors. And so I embarked uh, finally – Six years ago, when I formed my own firm and was much more productive with my time, and uh, I, I finally tackled the material that has been continually updated, obviously, with Warren Buffett's ongoing um, news. Um, and so uh, the book came out um, in August. And I'm very excited about it. But anyway, I was uh, able to replicate this same process at another firm, which offered a mutual fund. And that too was ranked five-star when I left the firm about six years ago. So it's it's a proven process and it's uh, very exciting to continue to be a, um, a learner, uh, to, to learn um, best practices and, and really offer something that's um, tangible and, and practical to uh, the investor base out there. That's super cool. So yeah, hey, Scott, awesome. thanks, for, thanks for coming on and everything. Um, congrats on your success. Um, Two, wow, you know, one great turnaround story and another um, string of, of great successes. I'm curious, how, what made you decide on um, the three investors that you picked? Yeah, good question. The, these, these three investors had done well, not just over um, a few years, but over decades. And, you know, I, way back, long before CNBC, I was a big fan of watching Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser on Friday nights on PBS, um, Maryland Public Broadcasting. And to me, that was always the night to look forward to. And I loved Louis Rukeyser's way of making information, investment information fun and entertaining because he was a big punster. Um, but he also had on great guests, and two of those were John Templeton and Peter Lynch. I thought they were the sharpest of all the guests he had on. And and then obviously Warren Buffett um, is in a league of his own, but all but those are the three that immediately came to mind. Um, I, I think uh, they're head and shoulders above everyone, and they all had their. Th- th- there's some common overlap between them, but there are also some differences. So analyzing all three of them w- was very insightful. No arguments there. I'm huge fans of all three. Yeah, ditto. Yeah, that was that was. Amazing. So I guess uh, a question about John Templeton. He, to me, was honestly the, the, the least known to me. And I just found his background and his life uh, 
fascinating. I mean, he, he wasn't, uh, he didn't come across as like a, a prodigy by any stretch. And he, his determination and his willpower and his, you know, I guess stick to was incredible. And just the fortitude that he had to just keep going and doing all the things that he did. For example, when he was, you know, his, his parents didn't have enough money to help him go through college. So he had to, he had to, he had to learn gambling to, to help him, you know, subsidize himself as he went through college. I mean, I just thought that, you know, those kinds of things were fantastic. So I, I guess I'm curious what about him, uh, drove you to include him in the, in the book? Well, like I said, I was very inspired by listening to his, um, his thought process on Louis Rukeyser's Wall Street Week way back when. And then when I ran, when I read his, um, his interviews, as well as a, a few books that he's written, he seemed to offer much more than just an ordinary investor. He was, I mean, he had a fantastic track record. He was, uh, from 1954 through 1992, his compound rate of return was 14.5% versus uh, not quite 11% for the S&P. And so he, he's, his career um, you know, spanned many, many decades. And he was a pioneer in worldwide investing long before it was popular. Mm-hmm. So those angles. And then also he, he comes across very humbly. Um, he's... Like you said, he's very resourceful and determined. Um, but at the same time, he was a pioneer, not only in investing worldwide, but also in funding the Templeton Foundation, which um, it, its first um, prize for religion had uh, was a million dollars, which was more than the Nobel Prize awarded. So he's a very well-rounded and very humble and, and, and very optimistic person. I had the pleasure of meeting him in person and uh, he was just as unassuming and and humble uh, that the way he comes across in the book is is much more so in person. And unfortunately, he passed away, but um, his legacy li- really lives on. Yeah, it was it, it, it I, that all came through in the book for sure. You know the the impact that the religion had on his life and uh, just the the positivity that he had and, and how upbeat he was and. He just was, he just was not a negative person. He just, you know, I noticed throughout the course of his life, you know, his, he grew up kind of during the the depression era and right after that. And so he just really had a really positive outlook on life and he just never really let any of these potential, you know, hurdles slow him down. I just thought that was really fascinating. So what uh, I did notice that he also studied with Ben Graham. Uh, mm-hmm. which I, I did not know. So that was kind of an eye-opening thing. Um, so what did you think that he pulled from that compared to what uh, Buffett uh, kind of adopted from Ben Graham? Well, both of them, I think, borrowed from Ben Graham the, um, the view that investing in stocks is actually a stake in a business. It's not just some stock symbol that moves up or down um, and is easy to buy or sell. It's, it's actually represents a share of ownership in a business. I think that both of them also shared his, um, his philosophy that you always insist on a margin of safety when you buy. Um, and then thirdly, that um, take advantage of the market. Um, don't let it be your serve. Don't let it, be a master of you. You you let it be a servant of you. So take advantage of the volatility. Um, he he would his his um, credo was to always buy at the point of maximum pessimism, mm-hmm. and that makes a lot of sense. But it's also twenty twenty hindsight. You only know the point of maximum pessimism when you know, when you're able to evaluate that and you know looking backwards, but you're never quite sure in the moment if that's the maximum pessimism or not. But that still borrows from, from Ben Graham, which is um, to insist on a margin of safety. But I think both Buffett and Templeton move beyond, they recognize that what Ben Graham did worked for him during that time, but those opportunities really didn't exist uh, past the 19... 19- I'd say from the 1970s on, and even even Ben Graham admitted that at the end. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I know. Yeah, I know that. So I guess uh, one thing that I also kind of struck me too is he. Uh, I kind of he kind of feel like I, I could be wrong about this, but I kind of feel like he was maybe one of the first quant investors. He really seemed to embrace the security analysis portion of the books and, and really took to that type of analysis of the companies, which, you know, like you were talking about the microfiche uh, back in his day, that would have been yeah, even harder because you would have had to wait for the the quarterly and annual reports to come to you and you would have had to get them in the mail. And it's just the the time spent would have been so much more than it is today. His, you're right. And but he he it reflected the fact that he had a very open mind. <clears throat> I mean, he had. He, he insisted on value. Um, by the way, his his flagship mutual fund was called the Templeton Growth Fund. It wasn't called the Templeton Value Fund, <laughs> <laughs> which a lot of people uh, kind of gloss over. Um, but he was looking for value uh, in different ways. And I think the fact that he was able to transition from a strict so-called cigar butt philosophy from from Ben Graham, where that he, he wanted to buy tangible um, book value at less at less than its worth, basically with this concept of his net networking capital, uh, which basically took the current assets, less all liabilities per share, and then try to buy that at a, at a discount to that value. So basically, you're buying the the tangible assets for free, mm-hmm. um, and you know that's. A lot, unfortunately, a lot of businesses were dying businesses that looked attractive from a tangible book value. But where both Buffett and Templeton transitioned beyond that was to redefine value as a discount to the present value of future core earnings power or future cash flows on a normalized basis. So they were able to look beyond the horizon instead of looking backwards like Ben Graham did. They would look forward through the windshield and say, what is the future earnings power of the business? Is it predictable? And then discount that back and say, is that a good value relative to today's price? Um, but the fact that Templeton adopted um, quantitative analysis, even some technical analysis to help um, give him comfort that his stock had bottomed, um, it was starting to perform, you know, starting to move off that low base that he would defer some of his purchases to wait for the momentum to start kicking up instead of buying it maybe too early and sitting on dead money for a long time. Right. So yeah, yeah. He, he definitely had an open mind. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. 
Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Yeah, that definitely came through in in the chapters about him. Uh, I guess so a question for you then. So as you were doing this research and studying all, all three of these gentlemen and, and trying to learn for them, what did you take from from Templeton that you use in your uh, process as you try to find investments to for you and your you know your clients? Well, there are a number of things. Um, he was he thought he always thought positively. He was an optimist. He believed in free enterprise. Um, he also believed in this principle called the retreat principle. So he, when he moved to um, uh, the Bahamas, at the came and the Bahamas, his his performance improved dramatically. He wasn't he was away from all the hustle and bustle of, of Wall Street. And I think there's a lesson to be learned there. If you want to outperform the crowd, you can't do the same things as the crowd does. Mm -hmm. And so by physically removing himself, um, he could discern things more clearly and think, uh, research things more thoroughly. Probably where I part from him is, is that um, he had, um, he traveled the world and he had a staff also that helped him in that regard. Um, In the end, it's all about conviction and what you understand and what you know. And, uh, you know, by not traveling the way he did, uh, I'm not going to Taiwan and and uh, Colombia and <laughs> trying to unearth all of these uh, nuggets out there. Instead, I'm more focused on what's in the U.S. because of, um, frankly, because of convenience and better reporting and other political issues. But um, I think, uh, you know, the fact that he uh, um, was a bargain hunter in a, you know, a value um, sense, but value defined, as I said, differently than just being a pure contrarian. A lot of people think value is about just simply being different than the crowd. It's not necessarily that. It's being, it's thinking logically and rationally with with numbers and figures, and convincing yourself that that whatever that market price is is as a bargain relative to the future earnings power of the company. And so, um, you know, he he ideally preferred growth stocks, which is how his why his fund was named that, um, and that's that's where I borrow from him uh, heavily on that concept. Well, that's yeah. awesome. That's that's interesting. Go ahead, I, Andrew. Sorry, I uh, it's okay. I, I like how you talked about how both Templeton and Buffett kind of take from what Graham had from the past, and you know, looking at tangible book value. And then now what we're doing is looking in the future, trying to find growth and um, looking for future cash flows. I know this is obviously a loaded question and um, obviously not trying to get you to talk about your entire philosophy, but can you give like one example of whether that's something quantitatively, qualitatively, something that you would come across along your investment process that would say, Okay, this kind of lends me to think maybe company A's earning power in the future will be higher than company B's. Um, as far as you know, aside from what maybe Templeton or any of these guys would do, but like for you personally, uh, what would be one example of that? Of determining, like, like, like you, like you know, you're you're trying to figure out value by, right, by figuring out what what business has good potential for great, you know, future cash flows and growing future cash flows. So what's one example? Sure. 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 Okay. I got you now. Um, Yeah. Great. It's all about um, conviction and borrowing a term from um, Warren Buffett. He talks about staying within your circle of competence and staying with basically companies that you understand and really understanding what is the competitive advantage of the company. And is it durable? 
So to give it to bring it down to granular terms, companies like a company like um, Visa and Mastercard, for example, um, are companies that I like to think of as a toll gate business, in the sense that um, if if you use your credit or debit card and they get a small fraction of your purchase price as a fee for processing um, that transaction in a secure manner and you, you come to rely on it. And more of that's happening with mobile per, uh, digital e- e-commerce and using mobile phones to do that. And so you can't do that with cash or checks. It has to be w- with a, a um, e-commerce transaction with uh, which relies on, on either PayPal or Visa or MasterCard and or MX. Um, and so if, if what your, let's say gas prices double five years from now, and you're filling up your tank and now it costs $70 instead of $35. Um, they get the same percentage of that 70 versus the 35, right? And it costs them no more to do that. So that incremental profit on the same base of, of fixed cost is, is huge return on capital on that incremental purchase. So, uh, the, the best businesses are those that have high returns on capital. And Buffett would say high returns on tangible capital. In other words, uh, a company that can generate a lot of free cash flow with very little assets to do that is worth more than another company that generates the same amount of, 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 of income on a, on a huge amount of fixed assets. Um, those fixed assets need replacing and have to um, be replaced and maintained. Whereas if you don't have that, it's so much more profitable. So, those two companies, for example, um, have a high incremental return. Um, they've already got a big fixed base of, of transaction capability. In fact, they can handle three times the amount of, uh, today as with what they have now. And so when you, every time you swipe or, or insert your card to do a transaction, they're benefiting from that. And, and like I said, it, it, as inflation continues to grow and each transaction grows and the secular chain, secular uh, trends change toward more e-commerce, um, they benefit from all of that. And so the more predictable the company is, the more of a toll gate business it is, um, the easier it is to estimate what those future cash flows are. And then it's a matter of just simply discounting those back to today's value and comparing it to the stock price. I love that metaphor, the whole toll gate idea. So I think I guess when when I think of those two businesses in particular, and, and it kind of reminds me of you know you're saying Buffett has that preference for high return on capital, and you know a, a business like a Mastercard or a Visa, they don't have to spend billions of dollars on equipment to dig into the earth and build an infrastructure. It's it's kind of all there in the brand name. And so, kind of, you know, those those are good examples because they remind me of some other ones that guys like Buffett have had success with. Um, Seize Candies being one of those examples. You, you talk about a company where every year people are buying chocolates as gifts for Christmas, and if you're, you don't have to be the chocolate company, but if you're one, that's. Um, I know, being from California in particular, it's a little bit more popular there than it is on the East Coast at least from from what I've experienced. But having like some sort of a brand power um, really allows you to not spend as much from a and be in like a, a capital intensive and, and, and need a lot of these heavy liabilities in order to turn a, a big profit. And I think um, some of the case studies that you talked about with Buffett, particularly with C's Candies, really helped highlight that. That was a real catalyst and turning point in his views on buying what he calls wonderful companies at a fair price versus what he had done under the influence of Ben Graham of buying fair companies at a so-called wonderful price. And sometimes it, it was fool's gold. Sometimes it wasn't so wonderful. And the, the dying business um, showed evidence of that. Um, but he that was a transitional um, purchase for him, largely under the uh, with the influence of Charlie Munger who convinced him to pay up for quality businesses. And in fact, Buffett later said that 
one of his biggest mistakes was not paying up for quality businesses early enough. And that even, even uh, with his experience with um, Ben Graham, if you, if you were to take out the impact of Geico on the record of Ben Graham, um, it would be a fraction of what it was. It was a huge contributor to his performance. And Geico was another example of a very high return on capital business with, with a very strong, unique competitive advantage and pricing power. Um, and so, and it continues to this day. They have a, a low cost advantage and they continue to take market share under Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, those are some fantastic examples. Another, another thing I, meant, I forgot to mention about Visa and MasterCard is that they don't bear any of the, the credit losses. It's the banks that issue the cards that bear that. So it's it's a true wonderful business where um, it, it's, a, it's a toll gate. And the more you can just see with e-commerce, which I think is about um, somewhere in the low teens percentage of overall com- commerce, as that continues to grow, you can just see the secular trend benefiting both of those companies as people transact more and more with digital uh, uh, money instead of cash and checks. Yeah, I mean, people got to pay people, right? I don't think that's going anywhere anytime soon, no matter what happens with the economy. Right. Let's hope. The um, the other thing I liked about something I'm, I'm pulling from the book here, when, when you're talking about businesses and in particular good businesses, um, you mentioned both Templeton and Lynch favored two types of companies, um, blue chip turnarounds and smaller growth companies. So I'm a huge fan of, of buying small cap stocks for somebody who's maybe the be- more of the beginner um, area of our, you know, of our show, maybe hasn't dug too much into our archives. Um, can you simplify what makes small caps um, and smaller growth companies um, pretty attractive compared to the rest of the market. Hey you, what's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. Well, the first and obvious reason is because they're small. <laughs> they, they aren't suffering yet the law of large numbers that uh, as you get larger, it becomes more and more difficult to sustain very high growth rates. And so that's that's a plus. Uh, the other plus is that a lot, a lot of the innovation occurs at the small cap level. And uh, a lot of, the, you know, every large cap started off as a small cap. And yeah, ideally, you want to find the next Amazon or Google and they're still small caps. The challenge today is uh, a lot of these um, really dynamic, innovative companies are staying private longer before going public. And so when they do go public, um, their market cap is no longer small cap. Nevertheless, there's still a lot of fertile ground to choose from. Um, the other positive about small cap is uh, more often than not, they're still led by an owner, a founder, and um, and that founder still has all the passion and energy and commitment to make that business successful. That Sometimes that is lacking in, in very mature large cap companies where that passion and focus seems to um, dissipate where they're trying to serve multiple masters, uh, whether they be social, economic, or political, <laughs> and not just purely focused on delighting the customer. So there's a lot of other constituencies to satisfy the larger companies get. Also, the larger companies get, the more bureaucracy there tends to be and in, in somewhat, uh, as they get very mature, a, a set of complacency set, sometimes sets in. So all of those factors uh, favor small cap. I'd say also, um, based on experience with small cap, the failure rate is higher. So while the reward can be higher, the failure rate is also higher. Um, with small cap, if you focus on the ones that have no debt or very little debt, um, if you don't have debt, you can't go bankrupt. So that's that eliminates a risk there. And um, I'd say another risk with small cap is that um, Oftentimes, the founder is someone who has the vision, but they need a strong number two to help execute that vision. And if there's such a dominant founder that 
has a hard time delegating, then that can be problematic for sustaining whatever growth they've enjoyed early on. And eventually, even small cap companies, um, as they go through that S-curve of growth, um, um, they go through transitional issues where they have to delegate, they have to um, hire more people. And sometimes it's problematic finding the same zeal and focus and passion as that founder has as they hire more people. So it's a dynamic, fertile field for a lot of promising growth, but it it also requires a lot of homework, as any investment does, but it can be very, very worth it. The other issue with small cap is sometimes it can be very overvalued because of that promise of growth. Uh, There's a lot of small cap companies that promise growth and don't have profitability yet. And um, and so it can be hard to value them if they're uh, being valued on a multiple of revenues instead of a multiple of earnings. And ultimately, the stocks are, are valued based on the, on earnings and cash flow in the long run. So, um, yeah, it's an exciting area. It just uh, requires uh, some good due diligence. Yeah, when you say things like um, small cap growth and then use terms like companies that aren't profitable yet and then maybe ones that like you mentioned, today's conditions where um, a lot of these businesses that maybe would have traded at a much lower um, market cap had they gone IPO earlier um, are now so overvalued. I think of names that pop up like Spotify, Airbnb, um, you know, lots of good, you know, like good ser- good products and services that I can definitely see a future in. Um, and you know, not going away anytime soon for years and years and years. But the problem with that, kind of going to what you said, is um, with so many businesses going IPO, it, it seems like you just need uh, a business that has public recognition for it to go IPO these days. And because so much of that is happening, you're getting such crazy overvaluations. And so a lot of these stocks that maybe might have been good investments had they IPO that smaller valuations. Now they're not. I mean, I know for me personally, I'm looking at a lot of these different businesses and kind of wishing I could invest, but kind of looking from a distance and being like, all right, well, at that price, I don't want to invest no matter how good I feel about the the future prospects and the future cash flows of this business. And so it's, it's, it's frustrating on one on one hand because there's a lot of businesses that just um, you just kind of have to stay back and, and just say either I'm going to wait and either it will become uh, a, a good enough price one day or maybe it just will never become a good investment as far as a valuation perspective goes. But on the other hand, I I have found that there are a lot of other small cap stocks that that portray a lot of the characteristics that you talked about that w- would come with success and, and have lower risks. So things like stocks with low debts, stocks with good earnings, um, and stocks with good growth and even good innovations. I think those things can all be found. You just kind of have to turn over enough rocks and, and really look and, and know what you're looking for just just to look. You know, in, in order to find things, you need to know what you're looking for. Yeah, and I think the other thing to point out is uh, with small caps, another big advantage of searching in that area is that the access to senior management is so much easier and better than large cap. Um, so the, a lot of the large cap companies have senior management that can often be shielded by layers of other people you have to get through the gate to get to. Um, whereas with small cap, they're, uh, they're anxious to tell their story and you, you know, you can, um, visit them. And, and I think more often than not, they're, they're happy to tell their story. Yeah. And I, I know we, th- that's a great point. I know we didn't really have much time to talk about Peter Lynch today. I think he exemplifies uh, a fantastic example of somebody who's been able to find great small cap growth stocks and really build huge wealth with that kind of to Dave's question, what he talked about with um, Templeton when it comes to Lynch, what part of what you learned about Peter Lynch do you um, try to emulate or have found success in implementing some of his principles? Keep digging. 
So each of the investors I chose a symbol to represent their, the essence of their investment style. And for Peter Lynch, um, it's a rock with gold streaks running through it. And he liked to, um, uh, to say that the person who turns over the most rocks win- wins the game. It's about keeping an open mind and doing a lot of work. And it really is. He, he was a tireless, I call him the tireless prospector. And that's what he was. Uh, so he, he had the, uh, somewhat of an advantage at Fidelity. They had a revolving door of company managements coming through, giving presentations in their office, but he didn't stop there. He went out and even on vacations, he would, uh, I'm, I'm sure much to the chagrin of his wife and family, uh, he would always make a point to stop along the road to visit a company headquarters that he knew was along the way. Uh, even in foreign countries, he would do that. So uh, he, he was a digger and he really believed that the more rocks you turn over, the more likely it is that you're going to find, um, uh, a valuable, uh, uh, something valuable under there. So that's one is just keep working. He also was uh, adamant that the novice investor can do just as well or better actually than the professional investor because they're more aware of what's happening locally in companies that uh, eventually grow from small cap to mid and large cap later on. And if you just focus on uh, at the grassroots level, what's happening, where, where are people congregating? Where are they? Where is the parking lot full? Um, and you can learn a lot about those earlier stage companies by just keeping your eyes and ears open um, as, a, as a prospecting ground. It doesn't automatically mean by where people are heavily attending. It just means that's a, a good prospect list. So he was a big advocate that um, a lot of uh, novice investors can be aware of those situations long, long before they're picked up by analysts, who are most of whom are in New York, and oftentimes have to wait until they reach New York before um, they pick up coverage. So there are a lot of situations uh, that, that helped his, port, his mutual fund Fidelity Magellan um, prosper because of those situations. I can't remember where I read this, but I remember reading something where he said there was this place that his wife liked to shop. And then he eventually asked her a question about it. And it ended up being like a huge stock pick for him. Yeah, that was legs. Okay. Um, pantyhose. <laughs> um, she was constantly working for him. That, that poor thing. Right. She's trying to have fun. Well, he had so, an open mind. He was looking everywhere. <laughs> Tireless prospector. That's that's awesome. So, if if Peter Lynch is the rock, what are the other two? Well, the other t- uh, for John Templeton, um, all of the symbols are in the form of a circle. It okay. can be consistent. So, John Templeton was a symbol of the globe to represent his worldwide investing and pioneer there. And for Warren Buffett, it's a baseball, and. Um, you know, I could have chosen to use pictures of those three investors on the cover of the book, but these invite the reader to explore, well, why, why choose a baseball? And for Buffett, um, he was a big fan of basically waiting for the fat pitch, waiting until um, the ball comes down the middle of the plate before you swing. And it's a metaphor for investing. So unlike baseball, where if a ball comes down the middle of the plate, or anywhere in the strike zone and you don't swing, it's a strike against you. Whereas in investing, um, he likes to say that uh, they can throw um, Apple computer at you right down the middle of the plate. And if you stand there with a bat on your shoulder and don't swing, it's not a strike against you. It's only as it only matters when you do decide to swing. And another thing that he mentioned was um, he was a big fan of Ted Williams um, where Ted Williams was the last great 400 uh, hitter. And Ted Williams wrote a book called The Science of Hitting, where he actually did a study and divided the strike zone into 77 different baseballs. And he uh, analyzed his average um, where he hit each of those baseballs in a game and found that the sweet spot of the strike zone, he would hit anywhere from 380 to 406, whereas balls, even in the strike zone, but on the low outside corner of the strike zone, um, his batting average would drop to 230. So what Buffett picked up from that was wait until uh, have the patience to wait until you're absolutely sure about what you're investing in and if the price makes has an adequate margin of safety and makes sense to buy it. And only then do you pull the trigger. And only then are you evaluated on how well it does. 
So don't, you know, even though stock prices these days have no commission um, to trade and you can do it in the millisecond on a, on a computer, uh, just because they're easy to buy doesn't make it, doesn't mean that it's right to buy unless it's in the middle of your strike zone. And the middle of the strike zone simply means, do you understand the business? Uh, does it have the durability of competitive advantage to make sure that it's going to have staying power and do the future earnings? Is your earnings power going forward discounted back to today warrant buying it at today's price? So that's, that that's home, those are the circle. Yeah, that was a home run right there. Great way to kind of <laughs> summarize everything and, and put it into concise words. I know Dave is a baseball fan over there too. Dave, do you have anything else to add? Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm uh, yeah, I'm a huge baseball fan, and I love the I love the story about Ted Williams and and uh, how that connected with Buffett because I think that's the perfect metaphor. I know Seth Carmen used kind of the same language in his fantastic book too, so uh, I think that's a great analogy. Well, yeah, I think comp- kudos to both of you for hitting home runs and what you're doing with these podcasts because. Uh, you know, as, as we have talked earlier um, before the call about the fact that um, there's a real life skill called investing that it is not generally taught in school. And the fact that you're making these podcasts available for everyone is, is a real service. So thank you for doing that and hitting home runs there. Yeah, thank you. And if the listeners out there are interested, this was a great read. Again, it's called Empower Your Investing. Um, you should be able to purchase one anywhere books are sold. And um, really, you know, I, I like to recommend, I've always recommended for years, uh, reading Peter Lynch as, as one of your first books. And so I think a book like this is just a natural fit, either whether you're a beginner, because it kind of gives you that that background on some um, some of these investors that have done well and then good insight into how they did it. The case studies are great too. And then even for somebody who's maybe more advanced and, and been investing for years already, I, I really, I think with any book I, I pick up generally, uh, I learned something I didn't. And with this, there was definitely a lot of stuff in there. I, I love digging through the case studies and I kind of have that mindset too of how did somebody do this and can I put myself in their perspective of, of how they kind of looked at things back then and, and see if those kind of results could have been replicated. So I appreciated Scott, all the work you put into doing that and going through all those articles and, and news clippings and everything. I think that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, the purpose of, of going through that exercise was to, first of all, understand what they were looking at then, but more importantly, identify them in a way that if you see the similar shadow on the wall occurring now, you could recognize that as a similar opportunity and capitalize on it and act on it uh, because you've, you've had, you've had the foundation of seeing how it's worked before in, in a different circumstance. Did you, so outside of listeners going in and getting your book, did you have anywhere else um, where people can interact with you online or if not, that's cool. Too. Sure. Um, my, uh, my email address is Scott S C O T T at chapmaninvestment.com. That's C-H-A-P as in Peter, M-A-N, investment.com. And I'd be happy to uh, respond to emails um, and uh, share share the knowledge. It's exciting to, to, to see this book come to fruition after a quarter of a century of work on it. And uh, it's really rare, actually, to see these three iconic investors profiled in one book. Uh, a lot of the information is in disparate interviews and other books, but if someone wants to get a, a jump start and streamline their their learning curve uh, and look at you know one resource where it's one read and, and it's very narrative, it's very readable in the sense that it's a narrative written. It's not written in a textbook style. Um, and uh, I asked my wife who read it who who she thought. Um, the level of reader could be. And she said, actually, high schoolers and possibly even advanced middle school people. <laughs> so not to take away from the content, but it's just simply the way it was written. So uh, yeah, I'm excited to see it get into the hands of people and help fill the gap of that, uh, uh, what was missing from it, their financial, their education for um, investing, which is such a critical life skill. Yeah, I always appreciate too. I like that you have um, such a 
extensive background in in finance world, ac- the academic side of it, and you still talk about how it's important to emulate those who have been successful. And I do agree; it, it is an easy read. It's a fun read. Um, mm-hmm. I learned that Warren Buffett bought a farm at the age of fifteen, which I'd never heard that anywhere else before. That kind of blew my mind. So there's a lot of just like random facts in there like that, um, which is fun. And yeah, so thanks. Thanks for coming on, Scott. Thanks for joining us, giving us your additional thoughts and um, also providing a service where you're helping educate people on finances and personal finance and financial independence and the fact that people can learn about it. And it's something that doesn't need to be arcane and you don't need to go to school for years and years and years for it um, in order to make a difference in your life. So thanks again and um, really appreciate your time and for you writing the book. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you, Dave, uh, both for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. It was it was our pleasure. We enjoyed it very much. And, you know, I, like, I want to echo what Andrew was saying, too. We, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and, and for sharing all your knowledge and, and all that hard work and effort. Uh, that is amazing. And you know, the book is fantastic. It's it is very easy to read. And it 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 comes across from a place of of humbleness and 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 learning. And I, I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our conversation tonight with Scott. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. Uh, if you get a chance, check out the book. Really, it is fantastic. Uh, Empower Your Investing, uh, Adopting Practices from Peter Lynch, John Templeton, and Warren Buffett. It's a fantastic view on investing, and you can learn a lot whether you're a beginner or whether you're a little more advanced or even if you're like uh, super advanced. Uh, there's there's a lot of great information in here, and Scott's put a lot of time and effort into it, and it's definitely worth your time, and it will help you with your investing journey for sure. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.